So thank you. Um, what a wonderful, wonderful time. And uh, I'm, it's an honor to be here. It's a privilege. It's a dream come true. And you guys have received me with so much love. So many of you have been to bench our country. Makes me want to cry. You've served the Lord there. And from the bottom of my heart, I want to say thank you. Mm -hmm. I, I just feel like we're family. Mm -hmm. And so uh, let me tell you a story about Holly Delgado. Holly Delgado was about 17 years old when she came with her church, Calvary Chapel Tallahassee, to visit us in, uh, in Lima, in Peru. And uh, that's one of the things that we do is we receive church teams, like uh, we did with you folks way back when. And uh, Holly fell in love with Peru, just like many of you. And she uh, found out about our Youth Summer of Missions program. So we have a program during the summer for six weeks for high schoolers to come down and to get a taste of what it is to live at a Bible college. So we'll teach them a course. We'll teach them how to speak Spanish. We'll teach them how to do cross-cultural evangelism. And then we send them out for about another month uh, to tour Peru. And sometimes we go beyond the borders up into Ecuador. And we've gone to Colombia and also to Chile, too. And so uh, we want them to have the missionary experience. And that's what Holly did. She really had a great time. And again, she graduated from high school and decided to go right into our Bible college. So she did all four semesters, two years of study with us, and she graduated. And we did not want to let her go. Some students, we can't wait for them to go. But Holly, <laughs> we wanted her to stay. So we gave her a position on staff with us there. And she did a wonderful job. And wouldn't you know that while she was on staff there, that she would fall in love with Manolo Matos. And so, yes, we do do marriages as well. <laughs> and, uh, and so they uh, married, and um, uh, about eight years, nine years ago, Manolo assumed the responsibility of the largest Calvary Chapel in South America. And so that's what they're doing today. And so Holly is the wife of a pastor, and um, she has a thriving women's ministry. The church is just exploding. And uh, we're really uh, blessed by uh, her testimony. So she's kind of our poster child. She's done it all. So she, um, she came down with a team. She was with our Youth Summer Missions. She went to our Bible college. She stayed on staff with us. And so we try and place people in ministry as the Lord leads. And, uh, and so they're together uh, overseeing this wonderful church, Calvary Lima. And so that's Holly's story. That's what I wanted to share with you. Now, many of you haven't been to our campus yet in Cajamarca, so I thought that I'd bring the campus to you this evening. Uh, do you mind watching a short video of the campus and taking a look at our students? Um, because of COVID, we've had to close our doors for the past year and a half. Uh, but we're excited to open our doors once again, Lord willing, in January. So, um, so that's part of the reason why we're on this tour, uh, speaking tour, letting people know about the Bible College. We're open for business, and, uh, and we have plenty of uh, flyers out uh, in the back that you can uh, let other people know that might want to be involved with the Bible College on the mission field that is involved with cross-cultural evangelism. So uh, what a deal, no? So let's watch the video. I hope you enjoy it. 
autonomous units from several continents, over 50 teachers from all over the world, and dozens of battle buses. After a year of having passed a global campaign, the Bible College is ready to open its doors in January 2022. Located at 9,000 feet in the Andes Mountains, reach a considerable distance from the city of Cajamarca, Calvary Chapel Bible College is a safe and COVID-free place due to the great measures that the staff has taken to protect everyone. Kids festivals, church planting, and Bible. So she said, uh, pray about joining us next year. We are ready. We're ready to open our doors. So this is uh, one of our brochures that we have on the table over there. Play, please take as many as you can. Help, them, help us to pass them out. Um, we can't take any back to Peru with us, and so we need to get rid of them while we're here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you instruct us, Lord, and you have something to speak to every, each and every heart this evening. I pray that you would be glorified in our time together, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be in Mark chapter 2 this evening, and uh, I would like to talk to you about the different phases in the life of a Hebrew man. Would that be interesting for anyone? Uh -huh. What it's like to be a Hebrew man, what he goes through uh, in biblical times as well as today also. So <clears throat> it all starts when he is born, and it's a time of great celebration. People are just so happy. They bring gifts to the family. They bring wine to the family, and everybody is elated when a baby boy is born. I wish I could say that about the baby girls, but... Uh, Unfortunately, a little girl is considered more as a, what, uh, a burden on the family, whereas a little boy, he will be contributing to the family, and so that's why uh, there's such celebration when a baby boy is born, they bring gifts, but when a baby girl is born, they leave the gifts at home, so it's really tragic. Well, between zero and five years of age, that's when 
It's the responsibility of the parents to homeschool their, their kids. And so uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 talks about this, that we should be instructing our children when they're little, when they go to bed, when they come in, when they come out. And so that's our responsibility. And so that's what they do up until five years of age. Now, at five years of age, they go to the synagogue school, and it's called Bet Sefer, the, the house of the book. And they're there from age five until age 10. And what they do during that time is they study the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. Mm -hmm. And uh, they say that by the time a little boy is 10, he actually has the entire Torah memorized, committed to memory. And so that's, that's a tremendous example for us. Uh, how many of us have memorized a single book of the Bible? And they're memorizing this as children. And by the way, that's the best time to, to memorize scripture. Well, after Bet Sefer, then they go to another area of the synagogue. They go to what's called Bet Midrash. And Bet Midrash is uh, where they study the remainder of the Old Testament, the Tanakh. Mm -hmm. And again, by the time they're 15 years of age, uh, from age 10 until 15, they will have memorized uh, great portions of the, uh, of the Old Testament, the Psalms and the prophetical books. And, uh, and again, it's just amazing that they would dedicate 15 years of their lives. Now, you know what happens at about age 13. A little boy will celebrate his uh, bar mitzvah. And that's the celebration going into adulthood. Now, for us, adulthood begins at age 18. But in the Hebrew culture, uh, a 13-year-old is considered a man. He's considered um, uh, an adult, and he's expected to act like an adult. And I've been to Israel many times, and I've seen how these young people are very mature for their age. They, they know that they have responsibilities as adults, and uh, they act like it. And, uh, and then the little girls, they celebrate the bat mitzvah at about, about age 12 to 13. And uh, it's coming into adulthood. Uh, for the boys and girls at that age. Now, at age 15, when they finish their synagogue training, all the young men, the 15-year-olds, they're waiting for their rabbi to come to them, and he'll lay his hand on the little boy's shoulder, this young man's shoulder, and say, come, follow me. And that's the invitation that they're all expecting, they're all hoping for, that the rabbi will invite them to spend the next 15 years of their lives with their rabbi. And so that means that they will walk with him, they'll talk with him, they'll sit with him, they'll eat with him. Everything that the rabbi does, they will duplicate it. So everything that the rabbi knows, they will learn. And so they're called talmidim. Talmidim are known as learners. They are pupils. They are students. They are disciples. We know them as disciples in the Bible. And I always enjoy going to Israel, finding these groups. There's an aged rabbi there with his long beard, and all around him are these teenagers, and they're just, uh, they love him so much, and he becomes like a father to them, uh, an example. And so they learn everything that they can from their rabbi. And again, they're with him for 15 years. That means that when they're about 30 years of age, then they go into the ministry themselves. And you remember hearing this from 
the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus was about 13, I'm sorry, 30 years of age, he began his ministry. And so that's when the rabbis began, uh, began to, um, to practice their uh, rabbiism. Mm-hmm. And let me see. From age 30 to about age 50, uh, that's when they're teaching their Talmidim. And uh, at about age 50, they kind of, um, they're put out to pasture. Uh-huh. They, uh, they become mentors and sages, um, important people for the up-and-coming rabbis. And so, uh, so they do that uh, until they, they pass away and, and move on. And so that, those are the different phases in the life of a, of a Hebrew man. Now I want to go back to that 15-year-old. Remember, he's anticipating the rabbi to lay his hand on his shoulder and to say what? Follow me. Mm-hmm. Now what about those that don't hear that from their rabbi? Usually the rabbi will come to, to him and say, go home and learn the trade of your father. And so he will go home, dejected, sad, depressed, because he was sent home. And he goes home and he says, Dad, teach me how to work in the fields. Teach me how to plant and harvest. Teach me how to fish. Teach me how to be a carpenter. And so these are, uh, these are what the dejected uh, young people do. They go home sad, with their faces down to the ground. They weren't invited to be with their rabbi. So it's a very sad time. It makes me want to cry again. <laughs> and so you can imagine uh, how many of them uh, must have felt uh-huh, to not be chosen by the rabbi. And so I want to talk to you today about someone who was not chosen by his rabbi. And we're in Mark chapter 2, and I'd like to read to you from, uh, starting in verse 13. We're going to be talking about the call of Matthew. And uh, it says here in verse 13, Then Jesus went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. Now we know that Jesus is in the town of Capernaum, and... uh, I go to Israel at least once a year, maybe twice a year. We always like to take our students from Peru to go see the Holy Land after their training. We took Marquitos, for example, and Josie as well. And, um, and so um, I love going to Capernaum. Capernaum is a very, very beautiful spot. It's right on the Sea of Galilee, and you can look at the, at the water, and you can see the boats out there. You can see the fishermen. And the fishermen, of course, bring in their catch of fish uh, during the evening, and they bring it in the morning to the market so that they can sell it. So there's tremendous commerce there regarding fish, the fishing industry. Also, um, you can imagine that that's where they build ships at and repair ships, and they sell nets and everything that you can think of for fishing. And so Capernaum is, uh, is one of the major places, or it was in biblical times, uh, for the fishing industry. Now, if you look on this side with the lake behind you, you can see these beautiful green hills. And that's where they grow today bananas, and they grow citruses, and, 
And the fruits and vegetables were grown there during Jesus' time. And again, they would bring all of those into the city of Capernaum to sell them. And so it was a, a great meeting place for the people. And the ruins of the synagogue, you can see today, you can visit them, and you can see that the synagogue was quite a large synagogue, which means that there were a lot of Jews living in the city of Capernaum. So there was uh, a great population center there. Now, not only that, but Capernaum was known for something else, too. It's on a road that goes from Europe to Africa and from Africa to the Orient. And so anyone going south to Egypt or going north to Egypt, I'm sorry, to Europe or to uh, Asia would have to go through there. And wouldn't you know, the Roman government would have a, uh, a toll <laughs> that they would charge for people passing through there. They would charge them just for passage, and then they would tax them on their, uh, the wares that they are selling as well. And so it was a perfect place. You couldn't go any other way. You had to go through Capernaum, and you had to pay the tax. It was obligatory. And so there was a tax office there. And with so much commerce and so much money, uh, taxes, revenue going through there, you also need a police force, don't you? And so we have in, this, in the story here in the book of Mark about a centurion who asked Jesus to heal his servant from afar. And so it would be natural to have centurions there. Centurions are overseeing 100 people at a time, 100 soldiers. And so there were lots of people that were living in Capernaum. And at this time, we know that Jesus had already chosen four of his disciples. They were all fishermen. There was Peter and his brother Andrew, and then John and James. The two sets of brothers were the first disciples that Jesus chose. And I can just imagine the disciples walking behind their rabbi, excited like little kids, just jumping and hopping and smiling and, and so joyful because just like you, they loved being with Jesus. They loved his presence. They loved his fellowship. They loved being with their rabbi. And so they wanted to learn everything that the rabbi knew. They wanted to eat everything that the rabbi ate. They wanted to, um, to experience everything that the rabbi could teach them. Now, we know that they were fishermen, and they were in their parents' what? Fishing business, which means that probably when they were 15-year-olds, they were not chosen by their rabbi. They never sensed someone laying a hand on their shoulder saying, come and follow me, until Jesus called them. They knew what it was to be rejected. They knew what it was to be disappointed. And how easy it was for them when Jesus said, come and follow me. Me? You want me to follow you? Of course I would do that. And so they left their fishing business behind, they left their nets behind, they left everything behind in order to follow Jesus. A great commitment and a great sacrifice. Let's read about Matthew and his calling. I believe that he was also uh, rejected as a Talmud, as a disciple. And it says in verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, what? 
follow me. So he arose and he followed Jesus. Now, <laughs> I think that Matthew was observing these four joyous disciples following their rabbi, skipping and hopping and running and smiling with such peace and joy in their faces. And Matthew was sitting there like, what am I doing here? I want what they have. And you and I are giving our community and our neighbors and our family a glimpse of what it is to follow our rabbi and being so happy about it. I see smile on your faces, and, and that is what I think Matthew was observing with the other four disciples. But inside he was aching. He was thinking, how, how could I ever be one of those guys? Well, let's think about Matthew a little bit. How many of you love the IRS? <laughs> Matthew, in order to be a tax collector, he had to purchase that position with bribe money. And it was quite expensive, but he knew that it was worth it because he would be able to take in a lot of money. He would take in what was required by the Roman government, but he would also take in a portion for himself. So these tax collectors were known as thieves and robbers, and they were hated by people. Now, Matthew, we're going to read about his friends in a little bit, and they're not the best friends that you can have. I don't think Matthew had many friends. He probably had money, but he didn't have friends. I think the reason he didn't have friends is, well, you hate people who take your money that way. But I think that his own people were angry with him because he was under the employment of their enemy, the Roman government, the government that was oppressing them. And here, Matthew was a traitor working for the Roman government, taking their money. And there's something else about Matthew. We know his other name is Levi, from the tribe of Levi, obviously. And those were the ones who worked in the temple and in the tabernacle and in the service of the Lord. So Matthew, Levi, was in the wrong place when he should have been serving the Lord. He was, he was a thief. He was a con man. He was a, a robber. He was a traitor. He betrayed his nation. So that's why I don't think that he had much money. I'm sorry, many friends. I think he had a lot of money. But you know what? Matthew hadn't learned what you and I have learned, that money doesn't satisfy right? The more money you have, the more you want. And you're never satisfied with the amount that, <laughs> that has been given to you. And so you want to get more and you want to get more. And it's, uh, what, it's like chasing that carrot dangling out in front of the, the donkey, right? Um, money doesn't bring satisfaction. So I don't think that Matthew was satisfied. I think at 15 years of age, he wasn't called but when he heard this rabbi, the master, Yeshua, say, say what? Come and follow me? You mean I can be like one of you? I can be running and dancing through the streets of Capernaum like you? Of course I would do this. And I really think that Matthew's sacrifice was even greater than the, 
the fisherman's sacrifice because he knew he could never come back to that office again. He could never acquire that position that he once had. And so talk about commitment. I think Matthew's commitment was even greater. But you know what? He was so dissatisfied with life. He knew he ran, ran with the wrong people, and he had to be with Jesus. And so it wasn't a hard decision for him. That's what I see in Matthew. Mm -hmm. Friendless, corrupt, uh, troubled, past, abandoned by his family, probably, abandoned by his own people, hated by most. But boy, he sure wanted to have a rabbi like that rabbi. Let's read the next verse. He was so blessed by his relationship with Yeshua that he decided to invite his friends to dinner. Let's take a look at it. The next verse says in verse 15, Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And so it's very interesting that Matthew was so excited about Jesus so that he wanted to share Jesus with his friends. Isn't that what we do when we are excited about Jesus too? We want to tell the whole world. And so we're missionaries in our own community. We're missionaries on the foreign mission field. We tell other people about what Jesus has done for us. He's given us joy. He's given us happiness. He's given us satisfaction. And so he wanted all of his friends, his bad friends, to know about Jesus. So he invited them all to dinner, other tax collectors and sinners. The Bible doesn't tell us what kind of sinners they were, but we can just imagine. Probably prostitutes were there, other thieves, maybe some murderers thrown in. And as I drive through California, Oregon, and Washington, I'm seeing all the vape stores and the tattoo parlors and other places that I won't mention. And I wonder if those were the type of people that were sitting at, at Jesus, at Levi's table eating with Jesus. You know, it's interesting. We always see Jesus comfortable with those type of people. Mm -hmm. He, it's almost like he fit in. Uh, he realized that they had certain needs, and he knew that he had the solution to their needs. So he wasn't uncomfortable with those smelly fishermen and those people that we tend to want to stay away from. Uh, we see Jesus being with them. On the other hand, I see Jesus avoiding the religious type of people. He didn't have many good words to share with them. He called them hypocrites. He called them a brood of vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs. And that's how he treated the religious people. You would think it would be just the opposite. He would shun the, the sinners and hang out with the religious people, but it was just the opposite. So I don't want to be a religious person. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be like the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders and the chief priest and, and the chief priest. Mm -hmm. They were all corrupt during Jesus' day. But for some reason, Jesus wanted to hang out with, with the sinners. 
Well, some people saw what Jesus was doing. Let's look at the next verse, 16. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats with tax collectors and sinners? And so there were people that were upset, and they were the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones that he just didn't care to mingle with. And they were pointing an accusing finger at Jesus. He is eating with those kind of people. Doesn't he realize what kind of people he's hanging out with, that he's dining with? You see, within Judaism, there's a tradition that you become one with the person that you're eating with. You break bread together and you share the bread and the bread you eat and the bread that I eat, we're becoming one. We're becoming equal. We're becoming just like each other. And the hummus that you eat together and the, the vegetables there at the table, the fish that was available, they were all becoming one with each other. And the scribes and the Pharisees See, this is what legalism does. Legalism wants you to uh, gossip. They didn't go to Jesus with their complaint. They went to his disciples with their complaint. Why is he eating with those people? What were they trying to do? Cause division. That's what legalism does. We have to fight against legalism. Why is your master eating with them what they were saying was that he is becoming like they are. If he were really the Messiah, he would know what type of people that he's eating with. But you and I know something different. He wasn't becoming like them. They were becoming like him. Mm -hmm. That's why Jesus loved to eat with tax collectors and sinners. Because he was winning them by just being there, to listen to them, to laugh with them, to joy with them. And doesn't our society need that today? Mm -hmm. They're looking for love, they're looking for acceptance, they're looking for something, and we have the answers that, that they're looking for. Well, Jesus knew what they were saying, he knew their thoughts, he knew their words. Let's read the next verse. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. <laughs> I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. Um, I don't know about you, but I love this verse because I'm a very sick man. I offend the Lord and I sin. I make mistakes, I stumble, and uh, I'm a very sick person. We have a doctor with us tonight. I'm so glad that Jesus is a physician and that he came to reach people like me. And if we're all honest, I think that we could all raise our hands and say, yep, I'm a sick person too. I need the Lord. I stumble, I fall, I make mistakes, I think, say things that I shouldn't say. And praise God that he sent his son for people such as you and I. You know, Paul says it this way, that he came to, to choose the foolish things of this world and the despised and the things that are not. He came...
for people like you and I. Not those who think they're righteous like the scribes and the Pharisees. <laughs> I have a brother, and I was trying to share Jesus with him, and I said, Larry, you need Jesus in your life. You need him as your Lord and Savior. And he giggled, and he said, why do I need him as a Savior? And I said, to save you from your sins. And with all honesty, he said, John, I've never sinned before. How can you convince someone of their need of a savior until you first convince them of their sinfulness? Mm -hmm. But according to him, he's never murdered anyone, he's never committed adultery, and so he's never sinned. But I know, my brother. <laughs> he's not perfect. He's in need of a savior, too. And so Jesus came to save the sinners. He came to save the outcasts, the down and outers. Mm -hmm. He came to save us. And he can identify with us because um, when I was in elementary school, I wasn't very athletic. They put all of the students against the wall and they started choosing the best athletes. And guess who was always left to the very last? <laughs> I know what it is to be dejected. I think Jesus understands that too. I don't think that he was chosen. He was working for his father as a carpenter. So he can identify with, with us. He could identify with Peter, James, John, and Andrew who were not chosen. He could identify with Matthew who was not chosen. Jesus wasn't chosen himself. And you know why Jesus wasn't chosen? Do you remember when he was in Jerusalem for his bar mitzvah, his parents forgot him there, and when they came back, he was teaching those religious people in the temple. I don't think any of them had the guts to take him on as a disciple. <laughs> what could they teach him? He would be their teacher. And so, yes, Jesus uh, can identify with us. And uh, he came to heal. He came to heal those of us that are sick. And so maybe there are a few of us today that really need prayer. Mm -hmm. And I'd be happy to pray with you after the service if you would like to. Um, my wife and I are starting our 24th year in Peru uh, in uh, October. And it just seems like yesterday that we moved there. It was October 4th of 1999. And so uh, God has done beyond what we could ever imagine or think. Um, I'm a window cleaner by profession. And that's what I do. If you need your windows clean, let me know. <laughs> and to think that the Lord would want to use a window cleaner to start a Bible college. I did very poorly in high school. I did very poorly. I think they felt bad for me and they graduated me. I failed Spanish one. <laughs> and my counselor was also my Spanish teacher. She told me, John, you need to take it again. And I said, why? I'm never going to use it. <laughs> and uh, so the Lord wants to use foolish people. Uh -huh. He wants to use window cleaners. He wants to use tax collectors. He wants to use very simple people. There's you know, the reason why he chooses the foolish things of this world is that so no one can boast before him. 
Mm -hmm. um, being a Bible college director is way beyond my ability. I squeaked through high school, and now I'm directing a college and sending students out to do missionary work and to start churches and to, uh, to be fruitful for the kingdom of God. That's not me. It's the Holy Spirit in me. And that's what uh, the Lord wants to do in each of our lives. You say, I don't have anything to offer. Um, all you have to do is, is present your body as a human sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. That's what Romans chapter 8 tells us, and it's very interesting. There was a, a chief in the jungle in Peru, and the missionary was trying to teach them what offering and ties were. And they don't use cash in the jungle, but they use animals. <laughs> and so uh, people were bringing their chickens and their pigs as offerings to the Lord. But the basket came to the chief of the village, and you know what he did? He stepped inside of the basket, and, uh, and he was saying, everything that I am, everything that I have belongs to the Lord. He was presenting himself as a as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to the Lord. And that's all that the Lord is requesting of us. He has done so much for us by giving us the promise of heaven and eternal life. We're going to live forever. He's gifted us his righteousness. He's made us holy and pure. What's the least we can do is, is say, here I am. Use me. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, that's the message that the Lord put on my heart to share with you today. And I see a lot of young people here. I hope that you're praying about Bible school. I pray that you're praying about going to the mission field. I know many of you have gone to Peru. You love it there. You know, you serve a great God who provides in supernatural ways. And he, uh, he leads. Don't ever say, well, I don't have anything to offer. I don't have enough money to go. You know, that's never an obstacle from the Lord. We limit ourselves sometimes. So maybe the Lord's put it on some of your hearts to go to Bible college or to serve on the mission field or to get involved at a hospital as a volunteer, um, teach Sunday school, set up chairs on a Sunday morning. I don't know. But uh, we can all present ourselves to the Lord as a, as a living sacrifice. Um, I have a couple of more videos to show you. Is that okay? Uh, I have some popcorn that we're going to pass out real quick. No, just kidding. Um, but wanted to let you know that um, kind of celebrating our 20th year in Peru, uh, we put together a book. It's called The Myth of Coincidence. Um, did any of you see the movie Forrest Gump? Yeah? Forrest Gump was always in the right place at the right time. And that's kind of how I feel, that the Lord has allowed me to be in very... Uh, unusual places at the right time. And uh, I've shared my testimony with people, and they say, John, you need to write it in a book. You need to get it into print. So I was obedient to the Lord, and so the myth of coincidence. I don't believe in coincidences. I believe we, hate, we serve a mighty and a powerful God. And uh, so it's a story of our testimony, 40 years in ministry, and uh, let me see. I have 59 years now walking with Jesus. And... Uh, and I only look like I'm 30, huh? <laughs> we have the book in Spanish, too, and want you to know that 
The book is available for you on a donation basis. If you have to give, that's great. If you don't have to give, that's great as well. Um, we have so many books, we need to get rid of them because we can't take them back to Peru. So you would be doing us a favor if you took a couple of copies each. And uh, what was I going to say? It's in Spanish. The blue one's in Spanish. So if you have Spanish-speaking friends that you would like to share the book with, please take it. And then it's in English. And it's being translated right now into French as well. And uh, so it must mean that the Lord wants me to go to France soon. Uh, and uh, so one video is concerning the book. The other video is concerning our uh, tours to Israel. I've been there about 30 times now. And uh, haven't been able to go because of COVID. But we're hoping to go in November. And so we're letting people know about it. Um, and... Uh, we're going we're gonna to walk through the door as long as it's open. So we're hoping to go to Israel in November from the 14th to the 24th. And then we have another tour planned for next, uh, next spring as well. So I wanted you to see those two videos. It was a delight being with you. I love you guys so much. You're my family. And um, thank you for allowing me to be here with you this evening. Shalom. Thank you. Thank you.